I'm glad you're here this morning to worship with us, and uh, we're going to continue on our series, the number of weeks, and the book of Nehemiah, if you buy your heart, you should grab one of those. Uh, there's some in the seat for you, and we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah this morning. Holman Jenkins, uh, writing in the Wall Street Journal a few years back, has heard this about big business and CEOs. It's safe to say that many CEOs see what they do as little more than a variation of the glorious widget of the They enjoy the opportunity to be in charge, but those don't give themselves about the exalting nature of the work. At the pinnacle of American business, they are treated literally like donkeys, nose to the ground, following a bunch of carrots laid out the road, tied to the stock price. Well, I'm not a CEO, so I can't see the accuracy of this statement. Yet, I think it will change our life eventually lead all of us to recognize the illusion of our own control. Last summer, I, at the beginning of Seattle, I had a chance to fly back east and ended my time in Washington, D.C. And one of my favorite cities to visit is the Lost River. So much to see. And you see just the history here, walk around museums and see monuments. And one thing I, I noticed, and, and you realize it is that all the people that are honored with statues and, and memorials, they're all dead. <laughs> the cemeteries of our nation's capital are filled with indispensable people that can do nothing to stop death. Think about that. People who fought the word of control, believe the illusion of control. I wonder this morning what circumstances that are present in your life that remind you of how little you are in control, how little you are in charge. Perhaps you can think about your own mortality, knowing that you have zero control on the day when you die. And yet, the other things that are filling your mind is going about the uncertainty about your future. Not, not certain about what's going to happen next. Or the fear of other people. Or, or things that you don't like about yourself. Or simply desires that you seem not in your control. So many circumstances in our lives, and there's been so little This was the position of God's people. For most of the Old Testament, especially in the coming of the Nehemiah. A number of weeks ago, we began this journey through the book, we looked at chapter 1, and we began to see the distress of Israel when their walls were in disarray and their people were, were, were troubled. And the book, the book begins with Nehemiah, the words of Nehemiah, a man who's not a charge. Who doesn't have control and a people that will find out who lost control. Lost control of their future, of their safety. But who is Nehemiah exactly? When we come to this historical book of the Bible, we come to, to learn of a man who's, who's like most people right here, seated here. He, he is more like you than he is like me. Nehemiah was a layman. He was a worker, he was a normal believer, and he was not a priest like Ezra of the book before, or a prophet like Malachi. He served a literal Persian king 
Can he work a secular job? See, I told you he was more like How many of you work for a liberal boss? In a liberal environment? Or a liberal agenda? Well, friends, these eight verses are for your joy. To see how God works in those circumstances. Now remember, Nehemiah here, he starts to leave about in chapter 1, about his people and his own city, and he begins to, to do something out of the ordinary, it seems, for us as believers. He begins to start praying. The year is 446 BC, and Nehemiah 1, it's 22 years after Ezra returned to Jerusalem. And in previous attempts, if you, if you look back and look at Ezra, Ezra to rebuild the wall and restore the fortunes of Jerusalem had come to nothing. And the people were not in control, and they knew it. And Nehemiah knew it. And so their only hope in this situation was to rely on God in prayer. And that's what we find in Nehemiah in front of chapter 2. And the question is, who is in control? Who is in control of your life? And where do you go when you realize that you are not in control? What is your hope when you realize that you do not do anything about your future? This morning we continue the series through the book of Nehemiah. And so here's the main idea. The good hand of God is with the prayers of his people. The good hand of God is with the prayers of his people. And there's three points I want to walk through in these eight verses. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. A strange providence, a strategic request, and a surprising result. So if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Nehemiah 2, if you're using a Bible that's in the seat in front of you, it's on page 370. It'll help you tremendously this morning to have a Bible open as we walk through this because a lot of what I'm going to say is from the Bible, okay? It'll help you not to be distracted and to check your phone, unless you're using your phone. And in that case, turn off the notifications, right? We learned that in Sunday school class. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Pause right there. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. Do you guys know what a cupbearer is? This is just the, the riskiest job possible. He was to taste the wine before the king. So there was no like uh, uh, digital way of testing whether it was going to be poison or not. He was the test, okay? So there's really no other riskier job right now than what Nehemiah is, okay? So the wine is before the king and he gave it to the king. And he says that now I had not been sad in his presence. Verse 2, and the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, then I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city 
and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So first, we see a, a strange providence. Right off the bat, we get the, we get the understanding of when it is, what time it is of the year, the month of Nisan. By the calendar, we find out it's been four months since chapter one, since that time of prayer when Nehemiah has found out what's happened in his city. Four months of praying. And, and Nehemiah has now an opportunity to go before the king as we see. Well, what we realize, again, I think just to be reminded, is, is waiting is never easy and seldom enjoyable. And we need to be reminded as believers this morning that, that behind life's frustration lies a divine providence. Waiting time for us is never wasted time for the Lord. He's still working even when we don't see the evidence. He continues in verse 1 to end of verse 1, Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, he says. The king, and let's just call him King Art, because I don't want to pronounce that name over and over. He notices, King Art notices Nehemiah and the change of his demeanor, and he asks him about it. See, all the, all the people at this point are enjoying a party, essentially. The wine's out. And so why is Nehemiah here spoiling things, looking gloomy and, and depressed? And he's saying, why are you so sad? Literally, though, the phrase in Hebrew is, why is your face so bad? <laughs> I'm going to log that one away. The inner feelings affected Nehemiah and now are affecting his face. Why is your face so bad? You don't seem sick, so, so what's going on? And then he says, I was very much afraid. Why would Nehemiah be afraid? Because essentially in those days, kings were like dictators, and this was a party. And who wants to have a party with a party pooper and, and bumming out people, right? And so Nehemiah has this terrible fear coming over him now. His sad face could, could have angered the king because this was a party. And he's a downer at this point. Or perhaps he's afraid because he knows now, now has come the time to approach the king, to talk about what's going on, what's been brewing inside of him for four months. And, and, and he's fearful that the king would not look favorably upon the request that he was about to bring. And why would he not look favorably upon the request? We have to go back to the book of Ezra. So you have your Bible open, right? I'm only going to take you to one passage this morning, okay? Turn back. It's the book before Nehemiah to Ezra chapter 4, okay? Ezra chapter 4. We'll be here just for a few moments. And in this book, we find out of this rebuilding of the walls and what happens, okay? It, this was not a new subject for God's people of rebuilding the walls and protection. And in the book of Ezra, we find out there was an attempt to rebuild the walls, but it was met with strong opposition. So look at Ezra chapter 4, verse 4. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. If anyone here has ever tried to do a building plan with inspectors in the city, this is, this, you know what's going on, right? How frustrating. This is essentially what's happening. 
They're going to build and, and, and they've got opposition, strong opposition. But not only that, the frustration that they're doing to the people, now they go to the king. So jump down to verse 11. This is the letter that they sent to the king. Verse 11, it's a copy of the letter. It says, to Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who, who came up from you to have us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that, this, that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and reform the king in order that that search may be made in the book of records of your fathers. And you will find in the book of records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces. And that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So they are not only scaring up division, they send this letter to, to the king. And who's the king that receives this letter? The same king in Nehemiah. And it's no surprise that after he receives this letter, it would be shocking, alarming, right? Did you catch that? I mean, if, if, if this happens, if, if the walls are built up, you're going to get no money. In fact, they're going to come after you. And you're in trouble, king, if you don't stop the building. And what does he do? Look at verse 21, Ezra 4, 21. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of this king? So, so this fills in a little bit of details, probably why Nehemiah is, is afraid. He's going to go to the king and ask him to reverse course, to reverse his own policy, to put his own kingdom at risk. Can you imagine now? Can you put yourself in his position of the fear that would be flowing through him at this point? But at the same time, Nehemiah knows that this opportunity is the one he's been praying for for four months, and that God has now provided the opportunity. And so he boldly speaks. Come back to, to Nehemiah 2. Look at verse 3. He boldly comes and speaks. He says to the king in verse 3 of Nehemiah 2, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? By fire. See, he, he respectfully asks the question of the king to garner trust and to show honor for the position, for his position. He shows respect and honor to the position of king. What about you? Would you have done the same to that liberal king? Or would it have been different? I'll tell you why I'm sad. You and your goons stopped the work years ago, and our people are suffering. We have the right to rebuild. We have this right. Your predecessor, Cyrus, said we could build this. And you are weak and ineffectual. You listened to bad advice, and then you crushed us. 
you just stopped the building. You didn't listen to us. You didn't wait to hear the other side of the story. No, you foolishly ended the work, you liberal goon. Now look where we are, broken, distressed. You did this, king. Would you have responded that way? Just let him have it. I mean, those things are true. It might have made you feel better. And you might have garnered some applause from your buddies. But it wouldn't have helped the people. It would stroke your pride, but it would put your people in greater danger. Dale Carnegie says, if you want to gather honey, honey, don't kick over the beehive. Instead, Nehemiah asks the question, why, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He's drawing him in to what's going on in his heart. The king hears and sees his heart, sees the need, and as we will see in the story, he, he wants to help him. The, the Persians revered their ancestors, and the graves were sacred places to them. And so Nehemiah must have known this. And so he confidently directs the king's attention to those present problems in his home country. So in God's strange providence, he's beginning to answer Nehemiah's prayer requests, and he's going to direct them as well. Number two, a strategic request. Look at verse four. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. You know, it's an important phrase right there. If you're following this narrative arc of the story, this is the climax, I believe, of the event, okay? This is the point of no return for Nehemiah. This is the opportunity that Nehemiah has been waiting for for the last four months. This is what he's been praying for for this opportunity right now to come before the king, to have an audience with the king, to bring the needs of his people before this king. And in the midst of an intense situation, where does Nehemiah go? Where does he go? You can answer out loud. He goes to the Lord in prayer, right in front of the king. The prayer that we looked at in chapter 1 will give, give way to this short prayer before the king. The, the scripture-saturated, God-focused, glory-filled prayer for God to do what God has promised to do has now produced in Nehemiah a heart that longs to see God's word finally fulfilled, and so he prays to the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah's private prayer life has now spilled into his daily life. Nehemiah prayed this way because Nehemiah was always praying this way. Have you ever found yourself praying this way in your life? You found yourself in a situation where you possibly have to confront someone or you have to have a hard conversation, and in the midst of the conversation, you go to God in prayer quickly and quietly? And make no mistake, this was a quiet prayer, okay? Because otherwise, it would be weird. Just so you know. If you're having a conversation with someone and they break out in prayer, God, thanks for this conversation with this person. I really don't want to talk to you right now. Please grant my request and not theirs. Amen. That's weird, okay? Just so you know, this is a private prayer, 
This is inside. And this is what Nehemiah does. And his short prayer calms his heart, focuses his mind, and he comes before the king to allow him now to unfold the the well-thought-out plan that he's been thinking through for months. What we find out here in the following verses is that Nehemiah is not flying by the seat of his pants. No, he's given careful thought about this plan, about what he's going to ask of the king. It says in verse 5, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, see, he's not done. I said to the king, verse 7, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. There are three things that we learn here, I think, about Nehemiah and his strategic request before the king, okay? He was prepared, he was wise, and he trusted God. First, he was prepared. Nehemiah came before the king and was prepared to give the amount of time needed for the journey and for the rebuilding. And he knows what kind of authorization he needs. He knows what kind of materials he needs, And from these facts, Nehemiah was not just praying during those four months, he was actually planning while he was praying. Do you notice that? It didn't just kind of happen to him that moment. His devotion to the Lord was no substitute for preparation, but neither is preparation a substitute for the devotion to the Lord. Sometimes we are really good at the planning part. Can I get an amen from the planners here? really good at the planning. We can detail all that we need for the project to be accomplished. We can figure out all the small details and how these details fit together, and we can be very, very good planners. And yet we stink at praying about the plans. And what we learn here is that while he's praying, these four months in chapter one, he is planning. Those, those went together. God will bring success to his plans only because he prayed about his plans. And these two seem to be welded right together. Second, he was wise. Paul writes to us in Colossians chapter 4, 5, and 6, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. Those verses in Paul's letter are played out right before us here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew how to describe the city's needs without offending the king. Remember, this is the king who halted the building process and, and before because of fear. And so Nehemiah needed to be wise in how he was going to approach the king to ask him to restart this process. And so he appealed to the Persian respect for the dead rather than to Israelite concern for the living. He spoke about graves first before gates. 
if he had spoken about the damaged defenses, it, it probably would have stoked fear in the king's heart. And so Nehemiah wisely directs his attention to something that he would understand, that he would respect, that he would, he would appreciate. And, and Nehemiah shows the utmost respect and graciousness in his speech to this king. I'm sure he disagreed with his politics, but we don't see that in his words here. They are seasoned with salt of graciousness and respect for the king and for his position. And in this, Nehemiah is not only showing respect for the king, he's showing respect and honor for God because who put that king there? It wasn't just by chance, friends. God put that king there. And God is ultimately the one who places kings in authority. And he was wise in his speech. But more importantly, last, he trusted God. So just pause for a minute and think through all that he's, he's doing. Put yourself in the position of Nehemiah here, okay? And think about how crazy this request really is, okay? It's like you going to your boss this week and saying, so I'm going to need a whole year off of work. And I also need a reference letter because I'm going to take another job while I'm not working for you. And oh, by the way, I also need you to finance the whole thing. Sound good? That's what he asked for. I mean, just late that baker noodle, friends. I mean, seriously, this is what he's asking for. How would bosses, most bosses, respond to that kind of request? Thanks for your service. We won't be needing you anymore. Right? I mean, most would be if, 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 if it was left up to us and our wisdom and it was our planning. Right? Coming back to this, friends. If, if all we're doing is planning and they're good plans, these are great plans that Nehemiah has, and it's divorced from God and from praying and asking God to work in this, then possibly that's what the answer would be. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. He, he plans and he prays and he trusts God to go to this king with this crazy request. I wonder, friend, what it means for you to trust God today in your life. You know, there's no one else that can answer that question for you today. Only you can answer that question. What does it mean to trust in God? Just take a moment and think about that for yourself. Have you considered this morning that you're completely dependent upon God for everything in your life? Have you reflected on the fact this week that your lungs have not drawn one breath and your heart has not pounded one beat apart from God and his provision for you? When you woke up this morning, did you acknowledge that you need God? Furthermore, when was the last time that you acknowledged that you need God? Have you meditated on your own neediness in God's constant faithfulness to you? 
See, it's good to remind ourselves of this. This is one of the reasons why we gather corporately each week and we rehearse through selected songs and and carefully thought through prayers and the reading of Scripture to direct our minds and our hearts that we need God. We need God's love. We need Christ's righteousness. We need him to forgive our sins. We need him to lead us. We need him to provide for our needs. We need him to reveal more of himself to us so that we can know him better. And our regular gatherings on the Lord's Day should remind us as individuals and corporately as a church that we as a people are completely dependent on him that he is the one who should be celebrated, that he is the one who should be thanked and praised. And so that's why it's so important, Christian friends, to gather with God's church on a weekly basis because you need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this. And it's even more important for us to just plug in and get to know people here. It's not just through the the liturgy of the service that we're reminded of this. It's through the the relationships that happen here. And so, just so you know, I'm never upset when you don't leave after the service and it gets up to 1 p.m. Because you're fellowshipping with one another. And just so you know, in case you're confused, the doors open here like at 8.30. So if you want to be an hour early before Sunday school, to fellowship and get to know others, you can. This is not an event, okay? This is a gathering of God's people. And so it's a good and right thing to come early and to stay late, to fellowship with one another and to remind one another these things about the God we worship, to talk about our lives, the struggles, the pains, the hurts, the good things and what God has done and how he's provided for us the simple fact that he woke us up this morning. Because if Satan had his way, he hates you and he wants you to sleep in. But you're here. And this is, a Sunday gathering is more than just a thing that we do. It's life-giving to a church. And so as the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake it. Don't, Don't lay it aside. Don't make it of no consequence. Make it important for life. And not just for you, Yes, you get something out of it, but for others. Do you think about that? That when you, when you miss church regularly because you're off gallivanting or looking at Tulips North or whatever it is, weeks and weeks on, that others here suffer because you're not here. See, gathering the church isn't just about us. It's how we can minister and, and love and care for others. It's two-sided there. So I want to encourage you to make it, make it your, your life to be a part of this church and not just pop in and pop out when it feels good and feels right. Well, we've seen a strange providence and a strategic request and, and last, third, is a surprising result. After all the fear, after the request, after all the waiting, we find out the end in verse 8. The end of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. 
So why did King Art agree to Nehemiah's request? It wasn't because of the, the eloquence or the clever questions or even because of the fantastic planning that Nehemiah has. No, he gave because God's hand, the goodness of God's hand, was acting. This phrase, the the good hand of my God was upon me, refers to God's benevolent and kind power to work in our lives. And all of this is possible simply because God desired it for it to be that way. You know, there's some theology here in these last few words. God is altogether sovereign, and the power of a Persian dictator is really no match for the God of heaven. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Boy, that's truth there. If God can change the heart of a Persian king, he can change the heart of any person, president or powerful man or woman. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Friends, I don't don't know if those verses give you peace or they frighten you. Perhaps if they do frighten you is that you don't really know the God of the Bible, but a God of your own making. A God that will never truly be in full control. One who's around and is loving and caring when you really need him, but really won't step in and and he'd never allow you to suffer. Friend, do you believe in a God who really isn't in charge? Who doesn't have control over everything? If this is you, friend, you ask yourself, what would change in your life if you acknowledged, as the Bible teaches, that there is a God and he's in complete control? What would change in your life if you believed, as the Bible teaches, that he is both completely good and morally pure and you're not? What would, what, would, what would happen in your life if you acknowledge that, as the Bible teaches, that you are in rebellion against him? No matter how polite and, and nice your rebellion may look. Any doubt that you may still have concerning God's sovereignty, God's holiness, and your own sinfulness will one day be removed. I am certain about this. As Samuel Johnson said to his biographer, depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he's about to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Our end is coming. Your end is coming. And you will give an account to God for your life and for your sins. And that is a staggering prospect. I wonder if you can say, stop for a moment to the rush of thoughts in your head about what's going to happen in the next hour, in the next day, in the next week, and turn your thoughts for this moment to your state right now for all of eternity. 
Friend, you will stand before God and you give an account of your life. No excuses will work, even if they're really good ones. No excuses will be entertained. See, the judge that you will stand before is omniscient. He knows everything. And he's completely holy and just and determined. And everything he does, everything is correct. And there will be no possibility either for appeal, if convicted, or parole. And God will call everyone one day before his throne, every president that has ever lived, every dictator who has ever ruled, every Sunday school teacher that has ever taught, every boss that has ever led, every sweet older saint. And they will stand before him. And you and I will stand eternally accountable to God. And now I ask, who can stand up under such scrutiny by an all-seeing, all-knowing God? Can you? This is a terrifying thought, isn't it? Every single thought you've ever had, every single hidden sin that you currently hide, will be brought into the light before an all-seeing, all-knowing God. And will you be able to bear it all alone? Christ perfectly submitted to the Father's will. Have you? Certainly not. I haven't either. So, so what can we do about it then? The answer is not simply do more. The answer is not obey better. The answer isn't do more good things. Friends, that's foolish and irresponsible. Your current good behavior will never hide your sins. Your sins against God will forever stand because he is an eternal God. And you can't do anything about your sins all on your own. See, the only answer that the Bible gives us is that we're to repent of our sins and to trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay for our sins, to take our sins because we couldn't do anything about it. Friends, have you ever repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus for what he accomplished on the cross for you? I have good news for you, friends. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day to not put this off any longer, to find a friend, to find someone who invited you to church, someone in your row that, that understands what it means, to find me. And I would love nothing more to talk with you, to walk you through what the Bible says so that you understand who you are and you understand what Christ has done to take away your sins and to give you life eternal. My Christian friends, I want you to remind you this morning that God is, is good by his very nature. 
and his goodness has stretched into today. And if we wake up tomorrow, it'll stretch into tomorrow. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. It, it will never change. If the Lord wakes you up tomorrow, friends, God will still be good to you. And his mercy will still be new. See, the reason, we're coming back to this, the reason why King Art was good to Nehemiah was because the king of kings was good to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is, is really helpfully showing us to not steal glory from God. He, he, could, have, he could have said, yeah, it's, it's about me, all my plans. This was great. The timing was perfect. But he doesn't do this. He's writing to us to carefully show us that God is the one whose good hand has worked in this situation. That God was behind it all. God is good by nature, friends. Have you struggled to believe that lately? If you're a Christian here this morning, you have experienced God's good sovereignty in the most personal and miraculous way because he's given you new life. He has forgiven your sins. He has given you new affection for him. And none of these things you could give yourself. I mean, look at your obedience even as Christians, right? Do you not see the hand of God in your obedience? Surely you do not ascribe your obedience to your own goodness. Did you really obey in in that instance this week? Yes, you did. But why did you obey? Think about that. Be patient and humble enough to consider this carefully in your life, Christian. And see the sovereign goodness of God, even in the smallest obediences in your life. Even if you succeeded in that project, you did that, yes, but why did you succeed? See, behind all of this in our lives, friends, is the sovereign goodness of God to us. And in God's great and sovereign goodness, he has acted even to prevent your very plans of sin because he loves you as well. And even in your disasters, Christian, even in your suffering, can you not see the overruling hand of God? And, and even if you can't see it, can you still not believe that it's there? God often moves in ways that are mysterious to us. God even moves in ways that we will not understand until we see him face to face. As you reflect on Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so Christian, go back this week, spend some time today or this evening or next week and examine your own life. And then tell me, tell me if you cannot see the same sovereign goodness even in the hard times even in the dark times. We need to labor to see God's sovereignty. So look for it in your life. And then share it with a friend, whether they're a Christian or not. Share God's goodness and his sovereignty in your life.
Friends, we should be encouraged by this passage this morning. God is in control, and we are not. The empires, the kings, the leaders, they stand no chance against the God of heaven. He is in complete control. And may we be reminded of that this morning. The good hand of God is with the prayers of his people. And so we, may we trust him more fully today based upon what we've learned in God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you, you did wake us up and that you've given us breath in our lungs and you've brought us, you've, you've gathered us. By your providence, you've gathered us together this morning. And yet we admit that our hearts and our minds have, are full of false images. We imagine that we are in charge. And when things don't go the way we want, we imagine that you're wrong. We imagine that you don't hear our prayers, or sometimes we imagine that you don't really love us. So God, we ask that you would forgive us for our sins of believing lies, of trusting in ourselves, and not trusting you. And give us, God, the gifts of repentance and faith in Christ for your own glory. Give us more of Jesus, we pray. Amen.